Hello and welcome to the Over the Farmgate podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host, Head of News, Abby Kay. This week, we're asking the question, how much of a threat does a trade deal with India pose to UK farmers? India is one of the world's biggest and fastest growing economies, with a middle class forecast to increase to a quarter of a billion consumers by 2050. Average Indian tariff rates on agricultural products are generally high, and non-tariff barriers to trade, such as sanitary and phytosanitary conditions, make things difficult for British agri-food firms wanting to export. There is clearly scope for a UK-India trade deal to smooth out some of these difficulties, giving UK farmers a potential opportunity to service this massive market. But Indian standards on animal welfare, pesticides and antimicrobial resistance are all markedly lower than those in the UK. Subsidies are also much higher. In fact, in the sugar sector, the World Trade Organization has recently ruled the Indian government's support for its farmers violated international trade rules. And let's not forget, India is a massive agricultural exporter. As well as being the world's biggest milk producer, it ranks second in vegetables, fruits and eggs and is the third biggest beef exporter on the globe. So how does a deal with this farming behemoth threaten UK agriculture? Let's speak to two experts to find out. I'm Vicky Hurd. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Head of Sustainable Farming at Sustain the Alliance for Better Food and Farming. And we've got a huge interest in the trade deal um, because how it will affect farmers, how it will affect the environment, the farmed environment and consumers as well and public health. Huge implications of all the trade deals that are coming up after Brexit. Hi there, everyone. I'm Gail Souter. I'm the NFU's Chief International Trade Advisor. Um, I am responsible for following all of the trade negotiations. Um, So we're really interested in in India. India is set to grow to be the largest uh, country by population in the world by 2026. So there should be some massive opportunities for us to send um, high quality British product to India. Thank you both very much. So I'm going to start with what might seem like quite an obvious question, but it's one that has really confused me. Why is it that this proposed trade deal with India hasn't been paid the same amount of attention as, say, the Australian or the New Zealand agreements which have recently been signed? Gail, do you want to start with that? I think it's fair to say that we're still in quite early stages of negotiations with India. We've had two rounds of negotiations. There's a third um, scheduled for potentially later uh, this month. Whereas with Australia and, and New Zealand, those deals uh, have been done. They were the first two that were struck by the, the UK government after Brexit. They uh, did command a lot of interest. I think they got a lot of interest because a lot of UK farmers um, know about agriculture in Australia and, and New Zealand. They've maybe travelled there themselves. They're more familiar with the products that come from Australia and New Zealand. We've been trading with New Zealand for, it's coming up to 140 years. The anniversary of the first shipment of sheep meat from New Zealand uh, is in the next month. So people are much more familiar with Australia and New Zealand. India is a little bit more of the unknown, but really why it hasn't caught the headline so far is that, as I say, we're just early on in the stages of negotiations. Vicky, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, no, I think it's it's sort of later than the other two. But um, I must say, we did a report on India um, in our part of our toxic trade um, reports back in 
2020. So we've been covering the India trade potential for an India trade deal for some time, as have our members, um, because we've got concerns about it. So we've been looking at it, and I think the attention will grow over this year as the details emerge. We're going to come to the threats shortly, but first, let's let's be positive. What are the opportunities then for UK producers? The Australians, they've just done a deal with India, haven't they, that eliminates sheep meat and wool tariffs. Can we expect the same, Gail, do you think? So India uh, is certainly a massive population. And if we look at um, the type of consumers in India, we are looking at potentially 60% of the population being classed as middle class consumers. Um, that means that they want to consume more high quality proteins like dairy, like sheep meat. Um, so, yeah, we do see opportunities in sending more UK agri-food products to, to India. Um, Australia have just done a deal with India. It was announced over the weekend. We don't have all the details, but we do think that it probably does provide um, a template for uh, what our government should be aiming for and hopefully um, uh, exceeding as well in the future. So removing the 30% tariff on sheep meat that goes to India would be a really big thing that we would be looking for, removing uh, tariffs on on dairy, high quality cheese in particular um, is another area where we think that there's potential opportunities. Uh, We think that we can send more apples and pears um, to India. Um, We certainly see some opportunities um, to service uh, the Indian market uh, out of their growing season. Vicky, what do you think? Well, I think, that, yeah, as Gail says, there are opportunities um, for high quality export of goods um, like wool and dairy products, where ideally the primary producers, the farmers, um, definitely gain from that new trade and have control in it. Um, so it's not necessarily feeding into a, a low cost commodity market, but actually genuinely benefiting both the farmers and the consumers. Um, and, yeah, so there are there are going to be opportunities, but not we would not be happy if they're going to be undermining our own nutritional security or Indian farmer livelihoods, both of which are really squeezed at the moment. But definitely are opportunities ahead, I think. What about the risks then? There are definitely some concerns about sugar, aren't there, Gail? Yeah, sugar is one that really does stand out for us from a fairness perspective. Indian sugar uh, growers um, receive a lot of subsidy support from their government. And there has been um, a case brought to the World Trade Organization to consider whether those subsidies are fair and are compliant with with WTO rules. And actually, India has just been found to be in breach of those WTO rules. Um, We're concerned because India um, is the second largest trader of sugar in the world. Uh, We don't actually import sugar from uh, India at the moment. They could. uh, They do have access to our market. Uh, But we are seeing... um, a lot of issues on on the world market. We know that the price of oil has gone up, for example. We see Brazil putting more of their sugar production into ethanol. Uh, That may very well then give an opportunity to India to send us more sugar uh, in the future. Um, And we're concerned about that because uh, obviously these subsidies that that sugar 
uh, growers in, in India receive have been considered to be uh, illegal. They've also got access to uh, a number of um, uh, pr products, plant protection products that, that we don't have access to here in the UK. So sugar is definitely one where uh, we want to make sure that the government treads carefully, that it really does consider what um, enhanced access it gives to India in our, in our sugar uh, market. Um, and we certainly want the UK to um, live up to its commitments that it's not going to undermine UK farmers by allowing um, that uh, unfair competition on, on our market. If that competition is allowed, though, what impact do you think it's going to have on our domestic sugar beet industry? I mean, they're already really struggling at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, for a whole range of reasons, um, sugar uh, growers are, are really un, under pressure, as, as are all farmers at the moment. We see massive increases in, in input costs. Um, it would be another player on the UK market, potentially pushing the price of sugar um, down to uh, a, an unsustainable level. I think the no farmer in the UK is really concerned about fair competition. If we can compete on a fair level playing field, then our sugar growers are amongst the best in the world. We've got no, no doubt about that. But when we know that the, the governing body for international trade, the, the World Trade Organization, has determined that the subsidies that Indian sugar growers receive is illegal, that is unfair competition, and we don't want to see our growers subjected to that. Gail mentioned plant protection products there, Vicky. What are your concerns about pesticides, not just on um, sugar crops, but on any other kind of crops that are used in India? Yeah, that's a really um, high area of interest for us. And when we did our toxic trade report um, uh, a couple of years ago, we identified many issues with regard to India. It's been heavily criticised in the past for its heavy use of, of pesticides in food production. And shipments are often rejected to other countries because the, the levels are too high. And it was one of the reasons that the EU... Um, trade deal with India was stalled for many, many years. Um, it's one of the highest users of pesticides after China. So we'd want to really ensure that um, this, our government did not weaken any UK standards on either pesticide residues or bans on harmful pesticides in order to allow Indian growers access to the UK market as part of the new negotiations. Um, so that, that's a really critical one. I think things like Indian carrots, they're permitted to attain 500 times the amount of fungicide captan than UK carrots, and that's a known carcinogen. Um, Indian grapes allowed to contain 200 times the amount of insecticide malathion and malathion is very known um, harmful to human health so we really need a strong negotiation position on pesticides um, to avoid having a flood of cheaper crops produced with lots of um, harmful uh, chemicals potentially um, harming consumers as well as the growers producing them back there um, or there's a risk of if we weaken our rules in order to do this deal to facilitate the imports particularly of fruit and veg um, then potentially we would lose access to EU markets um, for our own farmers and consumers would have lower protection. So all round, that's a, a major concern and we're doing some more detailed analysis for a specific India toxic trade report, which we'll um, publish quite soon. The UK government has been clear in its impact assessment that the agricultural industry can expect a fall in output as a result of an Indian trade deal. Um, what, what do you expect will be affected most heavily, Gail? Abby, yeah, you're right. Um, the impact assessment that accompanied the, uh, the sort of launch of the negotiations um, with India earlier this year 
did outline that agriculture and the what they call the semi-processed um, food sector, so your dairy, your your beef, etc., can expect to see a fall in uh, output as a result if they do um, achieve a, a free trade agreement with India, which is a really um, sort of strange situation um, to be in. Now, the impact assessment um, looks at, at, at different scenarios. I mean, we obviously don't know yet what the uh, outcome of the negotiations will be. But the fall in output is around, um, projected to be around um, £10 million in, in agriculture. Now, if you take that alongside the um, trade deals that we have just secured with Australia and New Zealand, if we put that £10 million into context, the government um, is forecasting that uh, the deal with Australia is going to cost the UK industry £94 million, uh, and with New Zealand £48 million. So uh, there would be much more significant effect um, as a result of the Australia and the New Zealand trade deal on agriculture um, as a whole. But the, the point that, that we particularly are concerned about and, and you know, we'd want to, to flag to government is is the cumulative effect of all of these trade deals coming online at the same time. So when you add up New Zealand plus Australia, plus potentially India, plus potentially Canada, plus potentially Mexico. Um, there could be others after that. There could be the USA, there could be Brazil. Um, when you start to add up the cumulative effect um, on certain sectors, our sensitive agricultural sectors, um, take, for example, the poultry sector in the UK, we would be concerned about um, India having access to our egg market. Um, eggs are produced in, in India still using conventional cages which were banned here in, in 2012. So uh, we are concerned that the, the, the overall effect potentially could be negative. Um, but what we really have to do is to find those opportunities where we can grow our exports of sheep meat, of dairy, and hopefully across the whole of the UK government's trade strategy piece, we see overall gains for UK agriculture. I think the impact assessment highlighted vegetables, fruits and nuts as being some of the sectors expected to take the biggest hit. But horticulture is one sector which is ripe for import substitution. I mean, Vicky, do you think it's strange that we're looking to sign these deals that could undermine any attempts to increase domestic production of fruit and veg? Yes, I see the um, impact assessment saw a fall of output of um, almost uh, 0.5%, which might be be small, but given the uh, difficulties for the sector, um, then you know the, these percentages could be quite significant, and uh, it's a real issue. Obviously, for products that we can't produce here, having imports that are not going to cause harm to human health or impacts in the exporting country, such as worker health or water stress, then importing more from India may make sense. Um, but for products that we can produce it, we should be really boosting production, sustainable production of fruit and vegetables and nuts, which could be a really growth, a big growth area. Um, so we need a, a resilient larger veg production here. But if they're competing with Indian carrots, with pesticides that are banned here or higher um, maximum residue limits as, um, in the products coming in, that will be very hard to do. They're already very, very stretched at the moment. So, you know, having to compete with such imports due to low standards would be, you know, totally undermining any efforts to increase um, what is a good, healthy product here. 
Those higher energy costs and higher labour costs are obviously having a big impact on, on that sector as well. So Absolutely. They're, they're coming from all sides. The pressures on the um, horticulture sector in particular that uh, is very close to the market, doesn't have a much um, subsidy support, unlike other sectors. So um, we should be really doing a lot to, I would say, protect that sector, but, you know, really support it in increasing um, production for, for the UK market so we can eat more domestic fruit and veg. Gail, you've already mentioned um, processed vegetables. The Indian Commerce Minister, Piyush Goyal, he's been clear that he sees that as an opportunity um, for the Indians to enter the UK as part of any trade deal. Does it concern you that retailers or food service buyers might switch to using Indian ingredients instead of domestic ones, particularly with those inflationary pressures driving up the cost of UK food at the moment? There is always a potential to see increased competition uh, on the market. Um, I think we have to sort of unpick every single product line by line. Um, India does have uh, preferential access to the UK market under um, the sort of general uh, system of preferences. So some of the tariffs on some of those horticulture products are already lower than they would be for other countries uh, in the world. Um, I like to think about India as more of a conventional trade negotiation. There's things that they will want from us and there's things that we want from them. And we will be able to negotiate that sort of line by line, taking a, a steady uh, approach to that. When it was with Australia and New Zealand, there was much more for them to gain in terms of accessing the UK market. Um, but with India, it should be a much more balanced negotiation where we identify what do they want, what do we want, where can we have a negotiation around accepting what um, each other's important elements are and recognising that we do have concerns about production methods, about standards, about environmental performance, um, that we can work through all of those issues and hopefully come to uh, the conclusion of a balanced trade agreement which uh, works for both sides. Being tough negotiators, the Indians, they do have that reputation. They've said that they want greater access to the UK market for meat products. Do you think this poses a threat and where does the standards argument fit into this? I mean, their traceability for cattle, for example, is is nothing like what we have over here. Vicky, do you want to pick that up first? Yes, I think there's huge issues on in terms of animal health and welfare and safety um, with regard to increasing um, imports from India without the right kind of safeguards. As already mentioned, battery cages are the norm. You know, 80% of the 230 million layers are in battery cages. So there should be a red line for egg powder from those systems. Um, pigs' method of slaughter is seen as, you know, really shocking in many ways, would not be legal in the UK. And cows are often confined and tethered. And there's hormones such as oxytocin causing them to produce unnaturally large quantities of milk, which have huge health and welfare issues. So we need to ensure there's a really strong animal welfare health and welfare chapter in the indian deal and um, traceability requirements going beyond the global standards which are which are not really enforced and are often lower than um, what we already have in place for good reason so you know we don't want to see our producers as as gail was saying undermined by produce from india that's allowed in with low or no tariffs um, but is produced to much lower um, safety and hygiene and welfare standards Gail, do you have anything to add to that? India is uh, one of the biggest producers of, of beef in the world. They're one of the largest uh, traders um, of, of beef as well, but they tend to export frozen beef. Now, there could be 
uh, a place for that frozen beef on the uh, UK market. Certainly then if you want to see much greater transparency in our uh, food services and our hospitality sector to ensure that uh, consumers know um, the provenance of the, the meat that they are consuming. Um, but it's unlikely that we would see direct competition from Indian beef producers on our retail shelves when it came to fresh or, or chilled uh, beef. Um, but certainly, as, as Vicky says, the, there is concern around poultry, uh, for example, and um, animal welfare standards across a number of the, the species. Transparency in the food service market, that's a, that's a whole different kind of worms that we could open up there. I understand that India is very keen on, you know, opening up the procurement market, public procurement in part of, as part of negotiations. Oh, really? Mm, that's what I, I was just reading about it quickly this morning. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, if, if that's going to be opened up, then there's a lot of concerns to think about there. Absolutely. Do either of you see food safety issues being a problem in this deal? I mean, certainly a few years ago, and I don't know whether it's still the case now, food contamination was a big problem in India, as were the use of antibiotics. Is, is that going to be an issue? Um, Gail, I'll come to you first. I think we have to be clear that the free trade agreement must not change our food safety law here in the UK. You know, we have certain standards that we expect. We expect imported product to meet that food safety standards as well. So uh, if India does get access to our um, a market, then there will need to be, you know, a massive investment in uh, audit certification processes to ensure that the product that they're actually sending to us does meet our food safety uh, standards. Do you think that we'll need to do more inspections at the border on food coming from India initially? Yeah, so that's really important that we know what product, not only from India, but from anywhere around the world, where that food is coming from to make sure that that food does meet our food safety uh, standards. We've seen some speculation in the press uh, in recent weeks that the UK might further delay border checks on uh, product coming from the EU. We need to make sure that we do not undermine our uh, biosecurity or that our food safety is compromised in any way. Food fraud is uh, increasing given the rising cost of food. So we need to make sure that we really do have robust border processes in place. That will apply to India, but certainly also applies closer to home with the EU as well. And Vicky, maybe you want to pick up the antibiotics point. I know you've done quite a lot of work on this. Yes, we're um, very interested in what could happen on this. I understand that this is a specific part of their discussions um, in terms of the SPS objective within the India agreement on antibiotic use. That's a good thing. If we do a deal, it should be um, very strong in driving down use in India, supporting that transition. Because India, I understand, has the highest levels of antimicrobial um, resistance in animals globally. They, they've got a real problem with antimicrobial resistance, which can you know, be a real killer in um, terms of healthcare, because we won't be able to use those antibiotics in healthcare. So we should be looking at the production and processing method, well, production methods when it comes to antibiotics, in not just the final product 
standards coming into this country, but how antibiotic use is is um, maintaining the kind of systems they've got in India. So it's you know it's a really big issue and should be and could be a prize from such a deal. I you know UK insists on reduction and India starts to invest in uh, new methods of production and management of livestock to reduce the the need for antibiotics. That will be a huge change for India with such large numbers of animals often kept in high, highly confined spaces. So given the huge ideological pressure for cheap food that is prevalent in our government, whether that will be something that is a, a strong part of the deal in the end, I don't know. But, you know, the, we've, got to mat, we've got to counter that pressure for cheap food imports uh, wherever we can. And antibiotics is one extremely good reason to do that. Can I just ask you both quickly then, do you want or do you expect the government to have a much stronger animal health and welfare chapter in the India deal than they did in the Australia deal? Because that didn't really seem to commit them to anything. We would absolutely want to see a robust um, animal welfare and antimicrobial resistant um, chapters, maybe uh, two separate chapters. We'd also want to see a really strong environmental uh, chapter. You know, UK farmers have a pledge to be net zero by 2040. We would want to see similar levels of ambition um, from the Indian uh, government on that. So I think there's real opportunity to have those robust chapters included into the FT. Having access to the UK market is a prized thing um, and we should certainly get um, as much out of that uh, in terms of any market access that we give uh, to Indian uh, exporters. Vicky, do you have anything to add? Yes, well, the Australia deal did present a very low bar, didn't it? So we'd definitely want the bar to be increased, as Gail was saying, on, on all aspects of, of production. The New Zealand deal is, is better, so um, it's not necessarily... The Australia deal isn't necessarily giving an absolute uh, idea of what this government is going to call for, and so would be... And the, and the public would be calling for really strong chapters on those areas, um, environment animal health and welfare, antibiotics, public health, all, all those should be part of um, the deal. And, and this government needs to have really clear red lines when it's going into negotiations. Just to touch on the politics of this deal then, before we draw to a close, Indian farmers have recently been involved in massive protests, haven't they? Vicky, maybe you can explain to our listeners what those protests were about and how they might affect negotiations for any deal with the UK. Yes, well, these Indian farmer process were extraordinary and very long in uh, uh, timescale. They were going for a very long time and hundreds of farmers died during the protest. So they were fighting for um, something very passionately. Um, and it was to stop the introduction of new laws that would have loosened market restrictions on the sale of farm produce and to end government price intervention. And you might think that's a good thing, but this would seriously undermine the important small-scale producers' viability because it would be consolidating and industrialising the farm food system. And they saw that. They saw what was ahead because they can see it in other countries. And they would be the mercy of huge, powerful buyers as corporate control of the agricultural sector and food system would grow. And that might sound familiar to farmers here. Ever lower prices, less and less control, um, lousy contracts, etc. So they fought back with their huge protests, which were supported by a lot of the country. And they did marches and 
because a lot of people saw the implications for livelihoods and for local communities and actual lives, because there's a you know, difference between life and death for many farmers and farm communities. And they actually won because they fought for so long and so powerfully. Um, the Prime Minister repealed the three contentious farm laws um, last December and talks continue on how to ensure a, failure, a fairer, um, less um, damaging um, set of farm laws could be introduced, which would allow farmers to be productive, but also to continue to be um, have a, a decent livelihood. And it was a very powerful thing to watch, and uh, we could possibly learn something about... Uh, having a strong farm lobby, I think, in the UK. Um, and we had that when we were talking about the trade deals two years ago. We were working with the NFU and farmers and the public um, to try and ensure trade deals are good, good for everybody, including farmers and consumers. Do you think as a result of those protests, which are still quite fresh in the memory, though, do you think we can expect Indian farmers to want their agriculture sector to, be, to remain more protected and to push back against giving UK farmers access to that market? There might be some of that, yes. Um, and I, I think there's some justification there in the same way that our farmers would want to stop imports of produce um, that, that's, that's not on a level playing field, as Gail talked about. You know, they don't fear competition. But for, for farmers in India, you know, there's really very little welfare state that protects them and their families and their communities. So it's that much more critical that they can maintain their um, uh, living through producing produce and selling it locally and getting a decent price for it. So it's, you know, it's even more acute over there. But it's the same problem for farmers here and overseas when they're, they're finding laws which are actually protecting corporations and the food, the big food businesses, rather than their own livelihoods and their own land and animals. So, you know, it's, it's the same, same here as there. And uh, we need to be having deals which which protect farmers and uh, the farmed environment. So I think we have to um, uh, avoid the sort of uh, approach that uh, let's see if we can win at all costs. Um, farmers in the UK, farmers in India, um, you know, they, they each, each side have their own uh, concerns, their own priorities. Um, and working through those, um, trying to find mutually beneficial outcomes which ticks the boxes for UK farmers, which ticks the boxes for Indian farmers. You know, that's what we really want to see. Um, and that's what we hope that the UK government um, and the Indian government will be able to negotiate over time. Right then. Nice easy one for the last question. How quickly is this deal going to be agreed? Gail, let's go to you first. It's actually not a very easy question to answer. Um, the... Uh, there have been some suggestions that there might be what's known as an early harvest where uh, both the UK and India agree to uh, go for a, for a quick and, and easy uh, deal where they um, pick the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, it's not entirely obvious that that is the approach that the, the two governments are going to take. But if it does, then we could see um, that first stage of a deal quite quite quickly. We saw uh, the Indian-Australia FTA announced uh, over um, uh, the, the last couple of weeks. Um, and we might see a similar model for the UK-India deal. If, we, if they decide that they're not going to go for um, this early harvest 
then um, it might take um, quite some time to negotiate a deal with India. Historically, they have a, a reputation of being uh, very long players. Um, they will hold out for a very long time uh, to get the right deal. Uh, so it's very difficult to say whether or not this will either be done very quickly or it might take many, many years to conclude. That's a nice answer then. <laughs> you've, you've hedged all your bets there. <laughs> Vicky, what do you think? Well, yes, um, you know, the government has said they want to do it by the end of the year. But as Gail said, that India can really uh, hold out. And the European deal has gone into the slow low lane over um, issues with labour and environment issues. Um, there's also the issue that the... Um, India's lack of sanctions on Russia for, for the invasion um, of Ukraine could um, lead to calls to stop the talks while Indians maintaining that position. Um, that's, that's sort of very live and topical um, thing that might make things go slow from our point, our side. Um, so we need to think about that as well. But the aim was to conclude by the end of the year, whether it would or not, who knows. That's all we have time for this week. I hope you found this as informative as I have. There's really not a lot of information out there on how a deal with India could affect UK farming. And Gail and Vicky did a great job of explaining the potential impacts. If you did enjoy this episode, please do share it with your friends and family on social media so we can get the message out there to protect UK farmers as this agreement is negotiated. In the meantime, you can also subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. And don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Farmer's Guardian, where you can read about how Oxfordshire County Council might be ditching its plan to serve vegan food only at all its events after the first lunch was a flop, and why AHDB has given a cool reception to DEFRA's post-Brexit farm support scheme. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. <laughs>